Now hear God's word. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and, what, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, he who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions, and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning, and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a, and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikuth, your king, and Kiun, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Our Father, how grateful we are that we can come that by the blood of the Lamb of God we can come and that we can draw near to you in all of our weakness, in all of the sin that has plagued our lives, in every trial and affliction and sorrow and suffering that we can draw near to the God of the universe because the blood of Christ is sufficient for us. And so, Father, as we come and as we consider your word this morning, would you be with us? And would you give us great confidence and great assurance of all that you have done to wash us and to cleanse us 
and to reconcile us to yourself and to forgive us and to justify us and to give us the great hope of eternal life with you. And so, Father, we are here asking for clarity and illumination as to the meaning of your word. And Father, in that, would you point us to Christ as all of the scriptures do. And as we look upon him, Father, may we see ourselves in him and may we rejoice. So, Father, be with us today and may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I um, toyed with the idea in light of verse 5 this morning where, where God talks about Bethel and Gilgal and Beersheba. I toyed with the idea of, of naming this sermon a tale of three cities in, in reference to Dickens' classic story, a tale of two cities, right? Set in Paris and London around the time of the French Revolution. You remember the, the famous opening line of Dickens' story. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness, the spring of hope, the winter of despair, and on and on as he, as he juxtaposed the the contrasting experiences and, and realities that people felt in that time, depending on which segment of the society they lived in and represented. So in Amos chapter 5, the whole chapter is organized around the realities of three cities, not two, but three, not London and Paris, three cities in Israel called Bethel and Beersheba and Gilgal. And instead of the message here being made up of, of, of contrasting experiences in Israel, some positive, some negative, here the, the only focus is negative, isn't it? There were no best of times going on to counterbalance the worst of times that, that God is speaking about, right? Right? There was no wisdom on display. There was just foolishness. There was no light, it seems. There was only the looming darkness. There was no hope spoken of to the nation of Israel in these verses. There was only the reality of a, of a coming long winter of despair under the judgment of God. And in the opening sentence here of Amos 5, God's words in verse 1 are these. He says, hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. What, what do you think of when you think of that word, lamentation? What, what comes to your mind when you're thinking about lamenting? We're thinking about deep, inner, agonizing grief, right? T to lament means to mourn. And to grieve deeply from the, from the very core of our innermost being. To experience and then to, to pour out sorrow and brokenness. And, and often that takes the form of tears and prayers and wailing and crying. So in the Old Testament scriptures, this word lamentation, kina in Hebrew especially when it's used not as a verb, but as a noun, a lamentation, not lamenting, but a lamentation. When it's used as a noun like it is here, this word actually refers to a specific kind of a poem or song, what we might call a dirge or an elegy, or a requiem. It's a song that is suited for the occasion of a funeral to be sung over the tragic event of someone's death. And in a very real sense, that's what the whole of Amos chapter 5 is. It's the sovereign God's lamentation and dirge over the death of the nation the earthly nation of Israel that has been brought on by the sin of the nation, which we've seen spelled out so vividly already in chapters 1 through 4. And the clear message is, 
here for the nation, the earthly nation of Israel, the clear message is that, that when God's judgment comes upon them for the sin, it's going to result in the death of the nation, and that when this death occurs, that's it. That's it. There's, there's not going to be a hope of, of revival for Israel here. Verse 2, fallen, no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. This is, the, this is the inerrant word of God. Once the judgment of God falls on Israel, which it did starting in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians invaded their land and eventually decimated that northern kingdom of Israel, once the judgment of God fell on them, Israel would not rise as a national power in this world again. She is forsaken by God, who had taken her as his bride in the first place, and no one will be able to save her from death, and, and no one will be able to resuscitate the dead nation once she falls. So this is a, this is a, this is a funeral requiem. But don't worry, <laughs> there's hope spoken of here, not for the nation as an earthly entity, but there is hope spoken of, right out of the gate in fact here, for certain people in the nation who seek the Lord. Look at verse 3, for thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left. So there's going to be a, a decimation of the nation that's going to erase it as a political entity in the world, but, and, it, and it's going to involve 90% of the population. These aren't precise numbers. God is speaking here in picturesque terms, but there will be a hundred left of the thousand. And that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. And then... Verse 15 speaks very clearly of a remnant of Joseph that God will be gracious to if certain people from the nation seek the Lord. So the nation will die, no more to rise. Out of the nation some, a hundred out of a thousand, ten out of a hundred shall be spared. A remnant of Israel through whom God will continue to work, the rest of the Old Testament Scriptures spell out, in order to bring about His ultimate purposes of redemption through the birth eventually of Messiah, who is Christ the Lord, who came to build a new nation that cannot die. So the message here in Amos 5, as this, as this funeral requiem or dirge is being sung and is the sovereign God himself is lamenting over the death of national Israel. The message is to the citizens of Israel, verse 4, seek me and live. Spoken to the people. Spoken to the household of Israel. So that when the judgment of God comes raining down to bring death on the nation, there might be among its citizens those who live because they sought the Lord. That's the only way to be saved from the wrath of God that is coming. Seek the Lord and live. And, and already right there, that in itself is such a massively important message from the Word of God for us to reflect on now in the 21st century, right? Because the situation now is the same as it was then. The whole earth is full of wickedness and godlessness and depravity of every kind. We've seen it through and through in every category and the parallels that we've drawn from the opening chapters here of, of the book of Amos. And there is a coming day, the day of the Lord, that the prophets of God all speak of, including Amos, when Jesus will return and bring the full weight of the wrath of God to bear one final time on this earth, on the whole created universe, destroying and dissolving it all, right? Like Peter talks about in 2 Peter 3. And then God will create a new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness will dwell 
And the only way to be saved from that wrath of God that is to come and be counted among those who will live forever in the new heavens and the new earth with God in the eternal blessings of His presence, the only way is to seek the Lord. Turn from sin. Turn to Christ and put your faith and trust and hope in Him. But Amos chapter 5 actually includes a whole lot even more wonderfully instructive truth than just that because not only does it exhort us in the positive sense to seek the Lord and live in light of His judgment that is to come, there's also in the rest of this chapter a lot of, a lot of God talking in the negative in terms of what not to seek. Seek God and don't seek this. And this is where the three cities come in. Verse 5, do not seek Bethel. Seek God, but do not seek Bethel and do not enter Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. And the whole chapter then is laid out in such a way as to focus on these three cities and what they signified in the history of God's God's dealings with Israel in, in contrast to what they had become because of Israel's sin. And we're going to unpack that, and as we do, there's a lot for us to glean from that. So, first of all, quickly, uh, let's look at these three cities that God speaks about here in verse 5, and think about the historical significance they had in the history of Israel. All of these cities, Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba, were places that Israel, in Amos' day, had set up shrines for the purpose of religious activity and worship. Bethel, we've talked about before already in Amos, was a city up in the north that was originally established as the northern kingdom's alternative to Jerusalem in the south because the northern kings didn't want all of the citizens of the north always going down to the southern kingdom's capital to worship because all of the politics and the economics of the nation were bound up with its religion, so they wanted to keep everybody up there. So Bethel was built after the division of the kingdom as a, as a, as a home base for people to go and worship. Gilgal, on the other hand, was, was far away down in the extreme southeastern corner of their territory near Jericho. And Beersheba, further even still, and not even in their territory, it was at the southern tip of the southern kingdom of Judah. And so if you were going to go from the north all the way down to Beersheba, you would have to travel more than 50 miles to the south, deep into the southern territory of the southern kingdom. The question is, why, why did people go to these places? All of these places held massive significance in the history of the nation going all the way back before the kingdom was divided, all the way back to the days of their earliest ancestors, their patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all of these places were places where people would go in order to make sacrifices and perform vows and observe various religious ceremonies as a part of their religious life in the hope and in the expectation that all of that religious activity was going to improve their lives. We'll go and we'll, we'll worship here in these, these significant places with the hope that whatever we're doing is going to make life better for us. And the problems, of course, were, were many. The most obvious problem was that all of these places of worship that they would go to, that they would make long pilgrimages to, in the cases of Gilgal and Beersheba, were, were not just devoted to the worship of the one true God. They were also full of shrines and altars to false gods, demonic idols of the pagan nations around them. And secondly, of course, when they go to these places to worship, really they were just going to places. They were just going to do things. They were just going to perform outward ceremonies and rituals. They weren't going to God. 
the one true sovereign almighty Lord of the universe himself. They were just doing stuff, hoping that it would make their lives better, but they weren't coming to him and trusting their lives to him. And then thirdly, we saw this kind of last week, everything that they were doing and going to these kinds of places and participating in all of this corrupt, false, syncretistic, worldly worship was was all driven by self-interest and not by a love for God first and foremost and the trust of God. What they cared about was not Him and His glory. What they cared about was their selves. And, And what they thought was that they... They stood to gain more for themselves by doing things their way and by putting all their hope and confidence in worldly things and in false gods and in all this religiosity than in devoting themselves to the service of the one true God who had proven his love and faithfulness to them in so many ways and so many times. So instead of doing it, instead of loving him, instead of serving him, depending on him, trusting him, seeking him, They were seeking self, and they were seeking satisfaction of their own desires and their own goals and their own ambitions through both worldly indulgence and through religiosity, rather than through seeking and serving and worshiping and living by faith in the one true God himself as a person. And like I said, each of these three cities that they would go to to do all this, Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba, held major significance in the history of Israel as places where God had worked to bless his people. So these were, historically speaking, they were sacred places. But again, when the people in Amos' day went to them, it wasn't to honor God or seek him. It was try, they were trying to to extract from these places themselves and from whatever false worship went on there, they were trying to extract more than what they thought God had to offer them if they just worshipped Him. And hopefully then we can see already, and we're going to see through the course of the chapter, some pretty significant application to how we live our lives by faith in God. So let's think about these three places. Bethel first became significant in the history of Israel all the way back in the book of Genesis in relation to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Jacob, the son of Isaac. Isaac was the child that God had promised to Abraham and Sarah. The name Bethel means God's here. That's what it means. It means the house of God or the place of God, the place of God's presence. In Genesis 28, you remember the first time that Jacob came to this place that would be given the name Bethel is when he saw this vision of a ladder coming down from heaven with angels ascending and descending on this ladder. And then God met Jacob there that night, remember? And they wrestled all night until the morning when the Lord dislocated Jacob's hip and then blessed him and changed Jacob's name to Israel. And see, it wasn't just his name that got changed when he encountered God. When he got to the place where God was, God's here, the house of God, Bethel, and encountered God, it wasn't just his name that got changed. It was his whole life. And, and through him then, God would work to change more than just Jacob's life, but, but the whole world. All of history would change because of Jacob's encounter with God in that place. Jacob came there in Genesis 28 because he was fleeing for his life from his brother Esau because he had cheated Esau, remember? Defrauded Esau out of the birthright. So Jacob Jacob came to this place running without knowing where he was going. He, He came to this place as a man without a future. Until God met him there and changed, transformed everything about him and about history forever. So, here's the point. When the Israelites thought of Bethel, this is what they were thinking of. The great historical place where God came to Jacob and changed him, transformed him. And and through him transformed the whole world. 
And, and that, is, that is what trusting and serving and worshiping the one, through God, the one true God results in. It results in the transformative power of God's grace and blessings in the lives of his people. Well, that's what was missing, see, in Amos' day, in the lives of the people of Israel. They were going to Bethel for all kinds of religious observation and activity, but they weren't seeking God there, and so their lives weren't being transformed, and they were staying in their sin. They weren't changed one bit by the power of the presence of God and His blessings. So there was hypocrisy when they went to Bethel. What about Gilgal? Gilgal's down near Jericho by the Dead Sea. And Gilgal was a place that first came into the history of the people of God when they invaded the promised land under Joshua. Gilgal, according to Joshua 4, was the site of their first encampment when they got across the Jordan River and they built a monument there out of 12 stones to commemorate how God had miraculously parted the waters of the Jordan River so that they could step foot into the promised land. So when the Israelites thought about Gilgal and what God did there, they were thinking about this great inheritance that God had promised, the promised land, and and that he had delivered, that he had been faithful to give through his sovereign faithfulness to them. But when in Amos' day they went to Gilgal to be religious, they, they weren't going to put their trust in the God of the promise. They wanted more in this world than what God had promised and delivered. So their worship was hypocritical in Gilgal, see? What about Beersheba, way way down in the south? Beersheba is a place that was associated with, with, with all of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham's the one who gave it its name. And in Genesis 21... When Abraham was there, the pagan king Abimelech said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. And then a little later in Genesis 26, God himself said that same exact thing to Abraham's son Isaac when Isaac was in Beersheba. He said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not for I am with you and will bless you and will multiply your offspring. And then in Genesis 46, when Jacob was heading down to Egypt, because you remember what happened with Jacob's 12 sons, 11 of them sold the youngest one, Joseph, into slavery down in Egypt because they were jealous of him. And then God very marvelously and providentially preserved Joseph and raised Joseph up there in Egypt and and eventually reconciled him to his brothers there in Egypt and that that spectacular picture of the the gospel grace and unconditional love and redemption that God is capable of and so when the reconciliation happened Joseph invited the whole family to come down and live there in Egypt because there would be food and he would care for them and he invited Jacob to come down and as Jacob was coming he passed through Beersheba and God said to Jacob as an old man don't be afraid for I will be with you and I will go with you to Egypt so when the Israelites thought about Beersheba historically this is what they thought about this great reality of the God who's with them always present in their midst through every uncertainty and all the trials and all the difficulties and pains and sorrows and hardships of life. It's okay because God is with you and you can trust Him. But in Amos' day, nobody was trusting Him. Nobody was communing with Him. Nobody was fellowshipping with Him. Nobody was praying to Him. 
as the divine Father who He is. Nobody was walking with Him in daily faith and trust and dependence in their lives. They were leaning on their own understanding and walking according to their own desires and in their own strength. Practically speaking, they had no need of God. When they went to Beersheba to worship the God who says, I am with you, they could have cared less. Their confidence wasn't in his presence with them, and it showed in all of the corrupt ways that they were living their lives. We're going to do what we want. And so, see, now the rest of chapter 5 is divided up according to these three themes that are signified by God's historical dealings with Israel in Bethel and Beersheba and Gilgal. And how in spite of all that God is and all that He'd promised and all that He'd faithfully done, His people are not living lives that are transformed by His power and grace because they're not walking by faith with Him and living in the reality of His presence and their hope and their confidence is not in His promises and His faithfulness. So, verses 6 through 13 is, is written in relation to Bethel. And God is speaking to Israel in Amos' day and emphasizing His great power to transform, which is, which is remember, the message of Bethel. When Jacob went down to Bethel in Genesis 28, he saw that vision, a ladder linking heaven to earth. Why is the ladder there? What's the meaning of this vision? Well, it's not to suggest that God is providing a way for people to climb up into heaven and get to God. It's the opposite, right? It's a picture of what God was doing to come down, which, which is what he did. He came and he appeared to Jacob and wrestled with Jacob. He came there. He didn't say, Jacob, get up here. He came to Jacob. That's what the ladder's a picture of. It's ultimately a picture of Jesus who came down, by whom all the blessings of God come down to transform our lives. Bethel, Bethel was the place where God was, where God encountered Jacob, and wherever God comes into this world, he makes a difference. So God came to Jacob, changed his name, changed his circumstances, changed his future, changed his whole life through him, changed the world, changed history. And at the heart of this section between verses 6 and 13 is, is, is God saying, I am the transforming God. Seek me. And at the heart of it is in verses 8 and 9 what's what's really kind of a hymn or a song to the praise and glory of the God who transforms and changes things. So this whole section starts in verses 6 and 7 with his urgent plea for people to seek the Lord and live and then gives the consequences of what happens when you don't do that. And then there's these beautiful poetic words. In verses 8 and 9, right? He who made the Pleiades and Orion, you know what those are, up the constellations up, up in the sky, and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, and who call, see the changes, and who calls the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth? Who does that? The Lord is His name. Who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. Pleiades and Orion, are those are just English. That's what we call those constellations in the sky. Uh, the Hebrew words here are Kima and Kassil, which are, which are the words that they use to refer to those same constellations up there in the night sky. And, and the, see, the point here is when we look up at those stars and you can identify those constellations night after night, year after year, Century after century, they're still there. The point is, God's the one who put them there. He set the stars in their places, right? David says that in Psalm 8, When I look up at the heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, O God. What is man that you're mindful of him? 
and the Son of Man, that you care for Him. Every single star in the sky, all of them, all, everything that you can see beyond the sun, every dot in the sky at night is a star that is multiple light years away from our own solar system. And there's trillions of them, and God put them all there. And human beings would do well to meditate on the awesomeness of that reality in terms of the vastness of the created universe that we occupy a very infinitesimally tiny space in and the awesome power of God who made it all and holds it all together. And so the greatness of His love, the, the one who made all those stars and set them, He loves us on this tiny little planet circling this relatively small little star in this unimaginably vast galaxy that we call the Milky Way, that is just a tiny part of the, the massively vast universe of galaxies? I mean, in terms of the physical scale of things, we are less than specks <laughs> in terms of the space that we occupy in this universe. And yet, He is mindful of us and always cares for us which is massively encouraging, right? Well, for the ancients, these two specific constellations that they called Kima and Kassil, and we call Pleiades and Orion, these ones were, were used to mark the changing of the seasons. Depending on their positions in the sky... They would know when to start planting crops and preparing harvests and start to store up provisions for the coming winter and start to store up water for the coming hot, dry summers. And the ones who were thinking biblically in ancient times knew and understood that those constellations that represented the changing seasons were much more significantly references in the physical universe of the God who put them there and who ultimately is sovereign over the changing seasons. And then Amos says also in verse 8 that, that God is the one who turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night. So he's not just sovereign over the, the four seasons of the year, he's, he's sovereign over the daily changes of our lives. When the sun goes up and when the sun comes down. And also he's the one who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. So, so he's not just sovereign over the predictable things like the sun coming up and the sun going down and the seasons changing and coming and going. He's also sovereign over things that are occasional and, and for us at least unpredictable. Like, like changes in the climate. And, and the patterns of weather. And verse 9 says, He's also the one who is sovereign over all of the changes of history. It is He who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that the destruction comes upon the fortress. He's talking about warfare and who wins and who loses. Whatever changes are going on in our world, on whatever scale and in whatever patterns that we're capable of discerning or not, the Almighty God is sovereign over them all. And that's so comforting, right? Especially when the changes of your life are ones that are unpredictable and are way out of your control and are really, really hard. You can know that God is sovereign over it all. I mean, how can there be any comfort without that reality? That nothing changes in this world apart from His sovereign permission and purpose. Nothing changes in your life. Nothing changes in your circumstances apart from His sovereign approval. And He's the one who isn't just sovereign. He's the one who's righteous and faithful and loving and good in all His ways all the time. And there's honestly, there's no way to get through the changes and the storms and the trials and the pressures and the afflictions of life apart from knowing that, apart from knowing Him. But the real emphasis here in these verses is on how 
in spite of who he is, the people of Israel were resistant to change in their own lives. They would come and go from Bethel, but they would remain unaltered in the sinfulness of their lives. So we're not just talking about people who are, who are struggling with sin and who are growing in grace and they take two steps forward and then sometimes or oftentimes they take a half a step or a full step back and, 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 the, and, and the growth chart of their lives is, is kind of like the, the S&P 500 if you look at it over a span of five years, right? It, it's got down seasons and it's got up seasons and hopefully the, the general trend is upward. We're not talking about that. We're talking about people who are just flat. They're not changing at all. They're going to Bethel, worshiping the God of transformative power, and they're not being transformed in a bit. They're lawless, verse 10. They're resistant to truth. They're unjust. They're unloving. They're oppressive to other people, verses 11 and 12. Again, not just occasionally, but persistently and characteristically. And even though they keep on going to Bethel to sing and to worship the God who is who He is, nothing about their sinful hearts and lives changes. And the bottom line point is that whatever they say about God and whatever they do in their worship of Him, none of it actually matters if He and His truth doesn't transform their lives and continually change them from sinfulness into the image of holiness. How many people are very, very, very outwardly religious and never, ever change a bit in their lives? Oh, they go to church. Oh, they worship. Oh, they can recite the hymns and scriptures. And they've got a lot of theology that they've learned and memorized and they could argue and debate with the best of them, but their lives are corrupt and unchanged. No matter what anyone says, where there is no change in their hearts to begin increasingly bearing the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, to, to be increasingly growing in fruitful holiness, no matter what they say, where there's no change, what they're actually saying is that God makes no actual difference to them. And that, that was Israel. They hated, verse 10 says, the one who reproves in the gate. Those were the judges of the society who upheld the law in Israel. And they didn't want to hear anything about the law. They didn't want God's word telling them about the sin in their lives. But see, someone who truly loves God, loves God's law, even though it's awfully uncomfortable for us because it exposes sin in us and that makes us hate the sin but that's a good thing because then then God changes it and in Israel they didn't want to be changed so they didn't listen to the law they despised it everyone did what was right in their own eyes they didn't want to hear anything that would expose their sin and so that's why they didn't change they weren't being transformed by the renewing of their minds So, verse 11, they trampled on the poor, they extorted and exploited people for their own gain. But see, someone who is being transformed by the truth of God's Word and the reality of His grace and mercy and love towards us, that's someone who more and more and more is manifesting and expressing that same godly grace and love and mercy towards others in in self-sacrificing ways, but not in Israel. In Israel, they came and went to Bethel all the time and sang and sacrificed and worshiped, but it was all just a facade, hollow, empty, void, because their hearts and their lives weren't being changed, weren't being transformed from darkness to light. Now move on, verses 14 through 20. It's all in relation to Beersheba that God is speaking there and emphasizing His presence, I am with you. He says in verse 14, Seek good and not evil, that you may live, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, even as He said. And 
Ostensibly, at least, that's what they were saying when they were making pilgrimage to that place where God had said to their ancestors, Fear not, I'm with you. They were saying, We want God to be with us, but they didn't. There's this sense in which very religiously they're saying God is with us by going to Beersheba, but it's empty. Again, it's hollow. It's, it's presumptuous because they're not walking with Him by faith. Because verse 16 says they don't hate evil. They don't love what, what God loves and hate what God hates. They don't do justice. So there's, there's, this, there's this horrible irony that on the one hand, they want to say that God is with them. And what they mean by that, well, we're the people of God and, and God's with us. He's blessing us, right? He's for us. Like he was for our ancestors when they crossed the Jordan and came into Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. God defeated their enemies, right? What, see, these people don't realize is that they have so arrogantly suppressed God's truth and God's law and have become so spiritually blind to their own sin that they don't even realize that, that for the holy God to be with them is not for them a good thing. <laughs> they should be alarmed that God is with them in their unrepentant, unchanged hearts and lives. So in verses 16 and 17... It's all about the judgment that God's going to visit on them because of their hard-hearted, unrepentant sin. There's going to be wailing in the streets and more. God's, God's going to be with you, but everybody from every sector of society is going to be in, in, in grief and mourning because God is with them. And in verse 18, look, he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. The day when... God would come to them in a unique and special way in judgment, and they thought it would be against their enemies, the, the earthly nations around them that oppressed them and made life hard, that God was going to come and, and be for them and, and defeat all their enemies. What they didn't realize is that in their sin, they had become God's enemies. And so f- for them to pray for the day of the Lord was foolish because when He comes, He's coming for them. Not to be for them, he's coming for them. And verses 20 and 21 say that when he does, uh, there's not going to be anywhere for them to hide. This is where he's talking about lions and not tigers and bears, but lions and bears and snakes. Oh my. Uh, He said, if you pray for the day of the Lord, then when the day of the Lord comes, if you don't repent, if you don't seek God, if you don't turn from your sin then it's going to be like this. It's going to be like you're walking through the forest and you encounter a ferocious lion and so you turn to run and and then all of a sudden you're staring in the face of a bear with big fangs and claws ready to tear you to shreds and so you run again and you find shelter in a house and and you slam the door shut and you bar it and you go, I escaped the lion and the bear and you lean up against the wall, catch your breath and a snake bites you and you die. You can't hide is the point. See? You can't hide from God. No one can. No one ever will escape the coming judgment of holy God who is all-knowing, who is all-seeing, and who is all-powerful, and who is, who is ever-present. Everywhere, all of the time. Where are you going to run? Where are you going to hide? You've got to run to Him. You've got to seek Him. But see, um, hiding from Him is hardwired in the sinful nature of human beings, right? That's the first thing Adam and Eve did after they sinned, after they ignored His law. They hid from Him. Unbelievers spend their whole lives hiding from God behind false religion. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with the holy God, so I'll deal with this made-up God who tells me, well, if I, if I do what I can do just thus and so, I'll be okay. They're hiding behind self-righteousness. They're hiding behind worldly wisdom. They're hiding behind worldly philosophy. They're trying at all costs to avoid an encounter with the living God. That's what unbelievers are doing. They know He's there. They know He's holy. They do not want to admit it. They do not want to face Him. And so they are covering themselves with whatever fig leaves and hiding like Adam and Eve. And even as believers... How often do we refuse to really count the cost 
of following him. How often, when it comes to trusting him, do we run and hide? How, how much do we really say day by day, it, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's not my life, it's purchased by his blood. The life I now live in this body, I live by faith in him who loved me, gave himself up for me, that's how I'm going to live. Every time we sin, whether it's actively doing what God forbids or, or, or passively saying, well, I'm really not just up for doing what God requires, it's because we're hiding from him instead of walking with him by faith and living our lives in the reality that that the Lord is always near. The Lord is always with us. The Lord sees it all. So in Israel, they had this unfounded assurance, see, of God's favor towards them. He's for us, but they had no reason to assume that because they weren't walking with him. They professed to be God's people and, and that God was with them, but, but their lives hadn't been changed and they weren't worried about their sin or they weren't worried about His holiness or His presence as the Holy One at all. So there was this total lack of any kind of evidence in their lives that might even, that might even begin to make their profession of faith in Him the least bit credible. For all their religiosity, there was, there was no fruit. And that brings us down to the third and final portion here of the chapter. Verses 21 through 27. Lastly, it's in relation to Gilgal that God is speaking and emphasizing the awesome inheritance that God had promised to His people who seek Him and walk by faith in Him. He gave them the promised land as an inheritance, right? That's what Gilgal signified when they came across the Jordan and encamped there. And when they went there to worship, they were confessing that they were the people that God had faithfully given this land to. But the question now has become, what confidence should any of them have that the inheritance will remain with them? Now here God is saying, you're about to lose the land, Israel. And when you lose it, you're going to lose it forever. Gilgal was the place where the Israelites celebrated this promise that God had given them to give them the the land as an inheritance and His faithfulness in leading them there and across the parted waters of the Jordan River to realize the inheritance. And, And in these verses... God's talking a lot about religion, right? Look at these verses. It's all about festivals and sacrifices, singing, music, worship services. The people of Israel went in big for religion in Gilgal. By law, attendance at at the feasts was mandatory for them. And there were, verse 21 talks about solemn assemblies that were especially important and required of them, kind of red letter days on the church calendar. They had to go, and they did. They went all in for all of it. Burnt offerings, it says, grain offerings, peace offerings, all the things that the law of God required as symbols of their status as God's people in the land. You'll notice, by the way, that there's no reference there to sin offerings which God also required. But they didn't want to observe because they were hiding in all their religiosity. They didn't want to deal with sin, actually, and be changed. And you know that in Israel, all their worship was permeated by music, right? Lots of singing, the psalms, and, and everything that they did involved music and song and praise. But in verses 22 and 23, God says, He says He can't stand any of it. He doesn't want to accept the offerings. He can't stand the noise of their music and of their singing. Not because they were off pitch vocally, but because they were dead spiritually. It's all a sham. None of it was accompanied by transformed lives of growing holiness and justice and righteousness. Their religion was canned, in other words, right? It wasn't real. It made no difference to life before or after. So it made no difference to God, and he he hated it. 
And not only was their worship of him heartless and hollow and hypocritical, they again also combined it with the worship of false gods, like the Assyrian gods Sikuth and Kiyun that verse 26 speaks of. They were identified, it says, with the star, and the star there means Saturn, big bright star in the sky that would show up, and when they saw it, they would pay homage to the Assyrian gods instead of, see, singularly paying homage to and worshiping and praising the God who put Saturn there in the first place. Instead of relying on him, they trusted gods that they would carve images of out of wood with their own hands, it says. That's what they did when they went to worship in all of these places, including Gilgal, where they were supposed to be commemorating God's faithfulness and giving them the promised land, but they weren't worshiping Him. They weren't trusting Him. And so now, verse 27, God says, I'm going to take the land from you. Right? You're going to lose the inheritance. I'm writing you out of the will, Israel. He's going to send them into exile beyond Damascus. And the message, see, at the end of all of this is that because their lives hadn't been changed at all by the holy God who they professed to worship and, and by His holy law and by His holy word, because they continued to hide from Him and to harbor their sin, because they're not walking with Him in faith and living in light of His presence, because they presumed His favor in spite of their persistent, unrepentant sinfulness and assumed that because there was something special about them, they'd always possess the land. In reality, they had absolutely no basis, no reason to be confident that the inheritance was actually theirs. And I tell you, there are Christians in that same boat today, or people who call themselves Christians. They think there's something special about them. They think... Because of their self-righteousness, God looks favorably upon them. They think that because they made a decision at Awana when they were six, and yet nothing changed ever in their lives. No growth, no repentance, no walking with God, no being transformed by the renewing of their minds, no fruit. They think, I'm good, the inheritance is mine. Look, the Old Testament earthly nation of Israel has, according to Amos 5, died to rise no more. There's people living there. Praise God. There is a national entity called Israel in the Middle East right now. Praise God. It doesn't matter in terms of God's ultimate purposes of redemption because now he's built a new nation, a new Israel, and it's a nation that cannot die. It's a nation that cannot be shaken. For them, the promised land was lost. But a remnant of Israelite people were saved because they sought the Lord and lived. They turned from their sin. They returned to God. Their lives lived in His presence were increasingly transformed by the power of God's word and law and goodness and faithfulness and grace. And eventually from those people, that remnant, the long-promised Messiah came, Jesus. And now by His grace alone and through faith alone, all who believe on Him are given everlasting life. And the promise of a true and ultimate inheritance. True and ultimate promised land, the new heavens and the new earth where only righteousness dwells, and where everyone will dwell with Him in the eternal blessings of His presence forever, who live by faith in Jesus now. And Jesus said, right, in John 10 and verse 27, talking about everyone who believes in Him now, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. Not... Not life that can start and then end. And they will never perish. And no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. This is, this is the difference between the new covenant inheritance and the old covenant inheritance. 
is that in the new covenant, it's unshakable. And, and life is eternal and, and not mortal like it was for Israel as a nation. Right? This is truth. The life he gives is eternal. None will perish who are given this life. No one can ever snatch us out of his hand if we've been given this life. Not one of his redeemed sheep can ever possibly be lost. That's how the new covenant in Christ's blood works. There's no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus because of the sufficiency of his grace and his work. No, Who can bring a charge against one of God's elect? against one of his own who's been bought by the price of his blood. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. So the question is, not if I'm his, might I lose it? No, that's not even a possible thought in the new covenant. The question is, how do I know that it it was mine in the first place? Because at six you made a profession at Awana, but your life never changed? How do I know that I really belong to him? Because faith produces fruit. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, Peter spells it all out. And I, we don't have time to, that's a whole other sermon. Go home and read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 10 and, and hide these words in your heart. Here's how you know. He talks about in verse 10 of that passage confirming your call and your election, that you belong to him, that this inheritance is yours. How? Well, you know, because Peter says, by God's own almighty divine power, he has granted to us through the power of his word and his promises, he's granted to us everything So we don't have to work for it or earn it or produce it ourselves, achieve it. He grants it everything that pertains to eternal life and godliness. Everything that pertains to life and godliness and they go together and this is how you know. Eternal life is granted by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What about godliness? Yep. If the faith is the faith that God has granted, then it will come with the growing godliness. The ability to turn from sin, the ability to grow in righteousness, the ability, Peter says, to escape the corruptions of this world and the sinful desires of our flesh, also granted by God's divine power. I don't have to muster that up. I can lean upon the everlasting arm for the godliness too. Through His living active word, Through his gospel promises, it's granted. And so, Peter says, because it's all granted, use it. Go there often and saturate your mind and heart with the goodness and the grace of God in Christ. And then through that divine power, make every effort, he says, to supplement your faith with with the virtue that this power produces. Knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. These are the kinds of virtues that the power of God working through the word and the promises of God can and will produce in the hearts and the lives of the people of God who are seeking Him. It's not going to happen all at once. Some people are going to grow faster than others. Some people are going to reach higher heights than others. None of us are ever going to be perfect in this life before the new heavens and the new earth in glory. It's going to be a process. God will define the pace. But as He's carrying us along and producing this fruit in our lives, Peter says, if these qualities, these fruits are yours and are increasing, not yours perfectly all at once, but are increasing then they will confirm to you by the work of God in you that you belong to Him. They keep you, he says, from being ineffective or unfruitful. And this is the way. Be diligent to confirm your calling and election because if you practice these qualities, these things, by the grace and the power of God, you won't fall. And in this way, 
there will be provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the true promised land. So Christians, the, the call isn't that you need to be perfect. The call isn't that you need to be sin-free in your life every moment of every day in order to know that you belong to God. The call is knowing that he who started a good work in you and is continuing it will get you there eventually. You will be holy as he is holy. By this process of growing in transforming fruitful grace in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and walking step by step by faith in the goodness and the holiness of God away from the corruptions of the world and the desires of the flesh towards the entrance of the eternal kingdom of Jesus where only righteousness dwells. And all of it, not by might or power in me, but by His Spirit, by His divine power, which has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, walk with your God in the power of His Word, in increasing fruitfulness and faithfulness away from the corruptions of the world towards the kingdom and you will know that you belong to him and you will inherit that kingdom and you already have let's pray and sing and come to the table and feast on the power of his grace today our God and our father would you give us confidence and would you help us to know the love of Christ that has been shed abroad in our hearts and to see the fullness of it, its height, its depth, its breadth, its width, to be constrained by it, as Paul says, that we might look at our sin that remains in us and hate it and be broken over it, but Father, look at Christ and be so gloriously overwhelmed with gratitude and love because he has paid for it all and he has given us life and he has given us hope and he has given us an inheritance that can never perish and he has made us members of a kingdom that can never be shaken and none can snatch us from his hand and so father work in us fix our eyes on him Continue what you have begun. Transform us by the renewing of our minds day by day. And conform us from one level of glory to the next into the image of the very glory of Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's.